I am here at Contrafilla 8 with Mr. Scott Wexler, a man who has been all kind of places and done all kind of cool stuff. And he has a very, very cool stories to tell about Contraflow here at, here at Contraflow about all kind of cool fandom and, and events that he's done in the past. And I'll, could you go a little bit about that and your back history on that? Well, the history, I mean, history and fandom goes back to the uh, uh, mid-70s, obviously, and as we've talked before, we're talking about different conventions and things that we've been involved with, and everybody seems to be interested in things that happened before cell phones. Um, I, I, I date everything by cell phones, because this is before the iPhone or after the iPhone, that kind of deal. That's the best way I can relate to it. I think, still think, you know, AM radio is a cool idea. It's very, very cool, and radio is totally awesome. You've been you've been heavily involved in events here for a long time, including you founded, I believe, an event called Crescent City Con, yeah. and you were a key instrument also in WorldCon, I believe the first WorldCon. Can you talk a little about first Crescent City, then about the WorldCon? Well, Crescent City Con came back, uh, uh, and we were talking about that today, some friends of mine. I had a ruptured disc in my back, and I was lying on the floor of a friend of mine's comic book store, and, um, and I, his name was Carl Tupper. He's deceased. And I said, Carl, what would happen if we did a one-day science fiction convention, like a garage sale, make a few bucks? And, well, he was a member of the Lions Home. And he is on the board of that. All right, we can get the Lions Home. It cost us 250 bucks, you know. And we figured, you know, figure out this budget. You know, we didn't want to spend any money, really. So, all right, fine. We'll put, we'll put up 500 bucks, right? 250 apiece. We'll do a one-day science fiction convention. Hey, man, if we get 50 people to show up, we broke even, right? Well, it turns out we did it, and 1,500 people, 1500 people showed up to the scene. Our movie room in a, was a Visqueen Walls. We took Visqueen hanging, hanging from the ceilings, and we had a movie room, and we did all the things you do at a con. We had a little tiny art show, like, like four pieces of art, and, and we sold uh, tables for 10 bucks a piece so people could sell, bring the junk. We called it the One Day Affordable Con, and we just killed it. And then the following Monday morning, we incorporated... And, and patented, uh, uh, copyrighted the name Crescent City Con, and the con ran for 20 years. Uh, it went through different stages from a one-day con to a three-day con, and then we ended the con in August of 2005 because uh, after the last con, Katrina came in three weeks later, and we were all getting older, and we were deciding to take the con, close it down anyway because we were getting younger. younger. And my joke to people was, it was just a joke. He said, yeah, we closed the con and we took the city with us. That is wild. That's awesome. True story. True story, buddy. So you've also been instrumental in WorldCon, I believe the first WorldCon. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that was? Well, what, ha what happened with the first WorldCon, uh, I'm told we had a WorldCon here in the 50s and 60s. I've never uh, seen any like documentation. Old, old, old. Old, old, old. Yeah, I, that's even before I was born. But um, what happened on that con was uh, uh, Guy Lillian and Justin Guidry and I forgot somebody else. So they, they had the idea of wanting to bring a world con to New Orleans. Of course, nobody had any money. And uh, they came to me and said, Scott, because I talked about it, it would be, be a cool idea. So I came up with a couple hundred dollars, I think. And uh, we went to Boston. There's a big con coming up of Boston for us to start putting the bids in. So I wrote the checks for the first uh, couple of bids. And it's just kind of, hey, guess what? We're going to do a world con. Oh, really? Yeah, New Orleans. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Now what do we do? But we did it. We pulled it off. It was in 88. And um, we, we had a great uh, convention because, of course, it was in downtown New Orleans. Yeah, instead. yeah. oh, yeah, we had the, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, we, we had the, 
uh, love being near airport. Isn't that great? No, uh, we uh, we have the Hugo Awards, but the nice part about having the Worldcon here in New Orleans and other you know conventions here all the time, we are down in town in New Orleans. We are two blocks from the French Quarter, two blocks from Bourbon Street. So if, if you're a fan, great, stay in the hotel. If you want to get out, go out and get stupid, hey, Bourbon Street's right over there. And of course, you know you can eat, eat to your heart's content. So it worked well for everybody. Everybody enjoyed it. So it was a great it was a great deal. Lots of work, lots of work. After we got after the bid was becoming real. Then tons of other people got involved in this thing. And I just kept doing my thing, organizing things, and get, making it happen. That is totally awesome, totally awesome. And you also had a lot of other people that were bidding, like you said, on that all over the world, or over the, over the U.S., right. Boston, Orlando, all these yeah, different, right. Canada. Right. And, and yeah, it, yes, and back in those, I don't know how it works today, but back then when you were going to do a Worldcon, you had to get pre people to pre-support. And you hold parties at all, all sorts of conventions around the United States. I mean, before we even had the WorldCon here, uh, the Crescent City gun, our, our game, we put in the bid, and we had the Deep South Con here in New Orleans, okay, which was a good launching point to have our WorldCon here in New Orleans. And as I showed you, uh, I have one of the old badges from 1986, I believe. 86, that one. And you have all the stickers of all the different room parties and all the all the uh, different groups on attending, not just from the United States, but some of these from Canada. from Canada and some country we haven't figured out what the hell this is. But this is that pin we were, we were that looking at pin, yeah. that little metal pin. We said, "Where is this?" I don't know. Okay, but they were there, that kind of deal. And um, I mean, even Washington D.C. came up to bid. It was so you can't hold a world kind of Washington D.C. There's not enough hotel space. You have the Hilton out by the at Dupont Circle, and that's it. That's all you got in Washington. But um, we, uh, we had all these groups here, and um, they came in to bid, and everybody had a good time. That is awesome. That's very, very cool. And uh, you've been involved also in the southern, the fandom of the South. Right. W what is your overall view on the South compared like, to the West Coast? I know you were, uh, you were friends with some guys from Comic-Con San Diego when they first started and all that. Uh, can you talk a little about that? Well, I mean, that was how I, uh, it's back when I had hair. I'm now bald. But uh, uh, to talk about it now, uh, I mean, the complexion is totally different. I mean, uh, fandom has gone a direction of with the mass multimedia. I mean, San Diego Comic Con kicks everybody in the butt, obviously. That and Dragon Con is huge. huge. I mean, and I remember when Dragon Con was a little small convention. But he grew it. Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. But uh, they grew it, and they grew it, and they, and they invested their lives into it. And they, all, all, they've done great with that. Same thing with San Diego. Uh, something like that, yeah. But, you know, when you get away from those two big cons, uh, I mean, conventions and fandom, I mean, uh, conventions are dying. And, uh, what do you, and what do you attribute that to? You attribute that to a couple of things. A, the Internet. And uh, the social media, uh, uh, people don't go to, it used to be a convention. You went to conventions a lot to connect with the people you knew, the people that you knew, uh, your friends, right. you know, uh, uh, the, to be social. Nowadays, being social, are you, fr are you friends, you know, are you friends on Instagram or Facebook, which, I, you know, I'm, I, my friends are kidding me about that with Facebook. It's for old people. Well, I'm, okay, fine, I'm old. Uh, but you know that that's it. It's that, you don't see that in fandom anymore. The, we see a smaller numbers going to cons, okay? But this, but unless you got a really uh, 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 unlimited boatload of money, uh, I think uh, conventions on the whole are dying. I mean, it's a shame. 
because the modern generation that's coming into this stuff doesn't do not know how to communicate and talk to people or, or sit back and just relax. They can't. They have to have a cell phone in their face. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's totally true. Well, you get around more than I do. Right. That's the way I see it. Well, the, the, there's that, and you know, you've got all the, the social media and all that. And like you said, if you don't have the big corporate sponsors, the, the you know, the bigger the sponsor, the more the money. Of course, the bigger the event. On a side topic, you also were involved in the dealers, room. dealers room. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. People used to go to a science fiction convention because I want to see what's in the dealers room. Right. Well, I'm sorry to say, uh, except for some of the local handmade stuff, most of what you see in a dealers room nowadays, you can pick up on eBay or on the internet. Amazon. Amazon or whatever. I mean, uh, if you, uh, this convention here, you see some local people doing this, doing the thing, the, 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 good, the good stuff. But people used to go to a con to see what was in the dealer's room. Now it's like, oh, I just Google it. You know, where is it? Oh, I found it here. That kind of deal. Very, very cool, you know, but you got all kind of stuff now with the internet. You can buy stuff in like all these big stores on the internet. Uh, you were also instrumental on a sign topic in the Star Trek The Experience. Yeah. What was your role in that? Believe it or not, it was in Las Vegas, Nevada. Right. And it was, uh, when was that founded? When did they first launch that? And what was your role in all that? Well, the Star Trek The Experience, they started the build out on Star Trek The Experience in 1996, Six. late 96 or early 97. And um, I got called in on that uh, because uh, I was considered, I had them all fooled, but I was considered an expert in fiber optic lighting uh, from an architectural standpoint. And I got brought in uh, to help uh, figure out uh, the illumination of many of the panel displays that you see, also the 3D models. And I got involved with that, uh, I got involved with that mess. And what, what was more important, I got involved in on the back side of it, after it was open, coming in and helping fix out, fixing all the things that weren't, weren't done right the first time. And I spent a lot of time fixing things out there. What was the Star Trek experience for people that may not know what that was? Just can you go a little bit into describing what that exactly was? Basically, if I were to describe it to anybody, it was, it, it was, a, it was like a, a Starfleet museum where you had a, had a, a, a track that you walk through with all sorts of displays and recre prop, recreations of props from the original series and also from Next Gen and with, with a, 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 a chronology of everything that happened during this yeah, the history of the Starfleet universe, and all, and when you spent like 20, 25 minutes going through this thing, they're dumped into a queue for you to do the Star Trek experience, which was they would take you, you stand in a line and in a queue, and of course you have like a Klingon or Ferengi, somebody come down and talk, uh, work in the crowd, and then it opened up into a full exact duplicate of a D-class Enterprise. Uh, they had two of those belts, but they had two side-by-side -side sets for that, and they would they would they would start that off, and of course, then of course, uh, being bet, being attacked. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember now because it's been closed for 10 years, and then they dump you into. Um, uh, you, then you're going through a uh, the corridors, and you'll see. Uh, you know, steam and stuff and pipes, and they're taking you to a shuttle bay, quote unquote. And then you do the the ride of the uh, of the uh, of the Enterprise, because as I recall now, they oh the transporter was uh, before you went into the um, uh, we went from that queue. I'm sorry, I got uh, the chronology. You went to a, well, the way it worked is like being pretend you're at Disney and you go into the queue of a roller coaster and you're in a room and they have the video the video just a plain room. And they'll have the video displays up on the walls, 
and they're showing, and it's Jordy LaForge telling you, telling you about the, uh, the the ride you're going on, and of course things go, lights start flashing, and things are going weird, and everything goes dark, and you feel a gush of wind, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all the lights go out, and then all of a sudden you're in a larger room, and you're on the transporter room of the Enterprise. Along with the sound effects and people looking around, what the hell happened? Okay, I'm not going to tell you how. I'm sorry. I know how they did it. I told you how they did it. I will not tell you to this day how they did that. But it was a very, very cool effect. And 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 in fact, when I would take people, I'd make them stand in front of me because I knew what was going to happen. You stand in front of me because I know, you know. Uh, and then they, the, they went through the whole crea- the creation. They take you from the transporter room to the inter- to the bridge of the Enterprise, and then through the rest of the ride. And then you went into a uh, three one of those three D inter- simulator rides, correct? And that, that flew through Las Vegas, like cra- almost crashing into the uh, hotels and things like that. It wow! Very, it was very very cool. I went to I don't know, I, you know I went there a bunch of times. So, um, and I take friends in there, and they loved it. It was an awesome place. I've been once before. Uh, yes, indeed, sir. Uh, you've also were heavy in that. Uh, when, when did you uh, first start getting into science fiction uh, for your life? Like, when did you? What, what also is uh, as a side question? What is uh, you, what, what intrigues you as the message for sci-fi? What does it deliver in your word in your own words? Like, what was the message of sci-fi to you? The message of sci-fi to me. When I get involved with science fiction, I think uh, since I was a child, I was always you know, reading, you know, like most of us geeks, I would always read uh, built science fiction models. Uh, uh, I was born in 1958, so in 1966, Star Trek came on, and it was like, grab me. You had Lost in Space before that. Even, but, yeah, even before that, Fireball XL5, I thought, was this a bomb? Oh, and I was, yeah, Jerry Anderson, when I was, when I was a kid, I thought Fireball XL5 was the greatest thing since Cheerios. But, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people, uh, uh, Star Trek influenced me, and uh, and I, I, you know, watched that religiously, and then I never knew anything about uh, about, about conventions. And then um, back in the '70s, a guy by the name of Jude Mule, and his, uh, who's passed away, started the first science fiction convention here in New Orleans called Vulcon, V-U-L-C-O-N. And Jim ran that for a number of years. And actually, he had it on this property. It wasn't this hotel because the hotel that was here was burned down. I uh, not burned down. Uh, yeah, the Hilton, uh, the old Hilton. They they bulldozed that one and built this Hilton. But Jim had the bulk on here, and that was my uh, uh, that was my first experiences with science fiction conventions. I didn't know they even existed. I fell into that, and I've been you know cons all over. I've been to cons everywhere since that time. But you know Jim, that that got me uh, very heavily involved. Not just being a fan, but also being involved. You know, I liked everybody else. I volunteered to be whatever they had me do. And then um, after Vulcan, what we, uh, we, we ended up uh, in 1986. I told you, the well, no, it, Vulcan was 88, but 86 is when I had the, I had a ruptured disc, and uh, the comic shop. And uh, I was in my friend's comic shop and said, "What would we do if we had one day con? We did it. Everybody thought we were nuts, and we did that." Uh, um, and I remember two years later, Jim Ule was talking to some people. And he was really dissing us. He said, who would have thought that concept would work? And I just yelled at him. I said, I did. He goes, yeah, 
I can't say what I want to say, but yeah, it's all good. And um, and we ran we ran Crescent City Con for uh, 20 years, and then uh, after we started Crescent City Con, another group uh, of our group of friends we uh, formed the New Orleans Science Fiction Fantasy Festival, which we ran for a number of years. Was and. Um, you talk a little bit about that, what that was exactly? We called it NASIF, and we had the, I, in fact, I chaired NASIF when we had it at this property right here. Oh, wow. uh, that's the only time we did that because some fan groups came in here, trashed the carpet and the sheetrock, so they kind of threw us out of here. But uh, it, 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 the uh, NASIF was more hardcore fans, i.e. towards the literary side of things. Oh, like it, this is kind of like this. Which is what this is, but uh, uh, Crescent City Con, where we're a little bit more media-oriented, uh, the Northern Science Fiction and Fantasy Festival was was a little bit more um, uh, 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 literary-oriented. I mean, we had big guests come in. Uh, my friend George Martin, who I think everybody know, who knows who that is, uh, George and I have been friends for many, many, many years. But you know. This is before Game of Thrones. But, you know, George, you know, he was editor of the Wildcard series, among other things. I mean, he was already established. Well, George, uh, George Martin, John Stakely, another friend of mine who a lot of your people won't know, he wrote a book called Armor. He also wrote a book called Vampires, which John Carpenter made into a movie. And um, John wrote that, uh, but John was a dear friend of mine. And I met George, and I met um, uh, I met George at Nassif one year, and I was already friends with John because John and I met another uh, at another convention at a bar. In a, we, a lot of things happen at bars, by the yeah. way. In the bar, the, oh yeah. Uh, and uh, George Effinger, who was, who was a local uh, Hugo Award winner, he wrote a book called When Gravity Fails, which was a Hugo Award. And George was riding with me and Demian. I'm, you know, John wanted to ride. George wanted to ride. George Martin wanted to ride. So I got these guys all into the Endymion Parade, which is the largest Mardi Gras parade there is. And, and we all were just very dear friends. And, and that transpired. And, when I, and, and the year I became chairman of NASIF, I, I called them up. You're going to be a guest at NASIF. We are? I go, oh, yeah. If you're not, you're going to be on the last float of the parade because I'll see to it because I'm also in charge of the floats. That is totally awesome. Blackmail. Blackmails for, for galore there. Well, Mr. Scott, it was a pleasure talking with you and hearing all your stories of awesome. This is Owen with SciFiction.com signing off.